Hideo Kojima has been one of the biggest names in the video game industry for nearly 30 years, and it was the Metal Gear series that really anchored his career. 1998's Metal Gear Solid is often looked at as one of the most important games in history, not only setting the stage for future stealth and third-person action games, but also redefining games as a medium for storytelling. So now, nearly 24 years after the game's release, we've decided to look back on everything that makes it so special. Does it still hold up after all this time? I'm Jason, and here to help me answer that question is my brother Jordan. Hi! Let's get into it! Metal Gear Solid. This is one of those games where it's so synonymous with the entire video game industry that I simultaneously felt intimidated to play these games. Like they felt too big and too much for me, but also felt like I was really, really missing out on the series by not giving it more of a shot. Yeah, I mean, it's definitely crazy. I remember growing up, seeing like what a big deal people made about the series uh especially like around the time three came out (laughs) that was one of the first games that i remember there being buzz about people were both like at the anticipation for it the reception after its release like i remember metal gear solid 3 being one of those games that you know it didn't have the mass effect that like elden ring has now because of the social media influence But Metal Gear Solid 3 was still one of those games where anyone that cared about video games even a little bit was aware of, even if they had zero intention of playing it like I did. I think one of the things that um, really drew me in at the time was just seeing all the advertisements where you could fight the monkeys from Ape Escape. (laughs) Yes. Yeah. I don't know why that is such like a clear and vivid memory related to these series. Like, I love the Ape Escape games. I felt like I wasn't smart enough for metal gear solid but catching monkeys i could do and that was the bridge i needed to finally like start paying attention (laughs) yeah i mean even then i more just kind of saw it as an oddity i was because sure i feel like if you haven't played the metal gear solid games like the perception of them is so crazy and different from what they really are yeah growing up i always thought like i'd always heard that they were super crazy and weird but I also always thought that they were super serious and very adult games, I guess. I guess we should get into this a little bit more, but they are not that. At least not in what I have played so far. <laughs> Jason, why don't you... I know you have a little bit more experience here, so why don't you kick us off? What What is your history with Metal Gear Solid like? So I've played the first one a couple times at this point, including PS3 re-release that came with the collection and the the GameCube version, uh, the Twin Snakes, which I, I played fairly recently. But other than that, the only one I had really played was <laughs> Metal Gear Rising Revengeance, the, <laughs> yeah. the Platinum Games one where you played as Raiden, yeah. and the whole game is mostly just kind of focused around cutting stuff in half, <laughs> giant sword that can cut through anything. That game is so weird, and like it fills such a 
like hyper specific part of my brain that I actually spent a good chunk of time with it, and I only remember like the most memeable parts of it. <laughs> like, like I remember playing it and loving it, and I don't remember anything about it. <laughs> like, well, it's kind of funny because I've played that game probably two or three times to completion, and the only other Metal Gear game I th- that was the first one I had played. Even like I hadn't even. Yeah touched metal gear one the first time that i beat metal gear rising revengeance and that was definitely something that kind of like made me super interested in the franchise and i around the same time that i played it the second time i picked up the collection and then i played through metal gear solid one and then i started metal gear solid two and i was like nah i'm bored but then a few few weeks ago i decided to take a look into playing Metal Gear Solid 1 again, and I talked about it on last week's episode of the podcast about, you know, how good of a time I had, and then since then, you know, we discussed doing this episode, and between (laughs) recording the episode two weeks ago now, and right now, I, I played through all of Metal Gear Solid 2, and then I'm about halfway through Metal Gear Solid 3. So I, I've definitely kind of fallen into these games. <laughs> like In a very weird order, too, because you've also played Metal Gear Solid 5, haven't you? Yeah, but Metal Gear Solid 5, I, I mean, it's kind of different, right? It's sure, First of all, it's sure. not like quite as stealth-focused as the other games. It has the option, but it's certainly not the best one a lot of the time. <laughs> I think like playing Metal Gear Solid 5 and then playing you know, the first three Metal Gear Solid games is a completely different experience. And, like, I really enjoy Metal Gear Solid V, and I'm excited to get back to it, because it's a game I think about a lot, and I definitely enjoy, but I've I've never really played that far into it. Played several hours of it, but I I don't think I'm particularly far in the story. It's a pretty lengthy game with a lot to do, whereas all the other games in the franchise are very, very linear, and it, it definitely has a different vibe to it because of that as well. But my experience is a little bit weird with the Metal Gear Solid series, or Metal Gear in general, I guess. Um, So I didn't really play any of them until Metal Gear Solid Five. That was the first one that I ever gave, like, an honest shot. And I probably played 10 to 15 hours, um, mainly focusing on side content and just some of the exploration stuff. I I never made it super far into the story. But I actually... I have these very distinct memories of playing just the intro, not very far into the game at all, but playing the very beginning of Metal Gear Solid 1 on the PlayStation 1, like, at launch. I want to think maybe the PlayStation 1 model I got came with Metal Gear Solid, or it could have even just been a demo, for all I know. Like, we had plenty of those. But I had these, like, vague memories of playing the intro and then when I sat down to start up Metal Gear Solid, you know, for the first time, basically since then, this last week, it all clicked immediately back into place. Like, I felt like the architecture and the layouts and where the enemies were and all that, like, I suddenly had these, like, vivid memories of what to expect, at least for the first hour of the game. Like, it was wild that it just, like, unlocked these memories that I didn't even realize that I had. And, uh, I mean, like, it didn't last long. Like, it didn't take me... It didn't take me very long at all to get past that point. But, like, this game made an impression on me. 
And I'm not saying it was all positive because I think part of the reason it made an impression was because I was just so confused by it. And I was playing this when I was only four years old. So it was, you know, just like the game mechanics alone were a nightmare at the time, I'm sure. But like this game, like really kicked something off in my brain for some reason that I had totally forgotten about until sitting down to play this. It's definitely very distinctive. And I, I, I think if you're remembering playing games around the time you know, like the PS1 was still relevant. There weren't very many others that were like so cinematic and story-based. <laughs> I think parts of like Final Fantasy VII are somewhat comparable, but those parts are way shorter and fewer and far between. Yeah, and they're not they're not nearly as grounded. Like as crazy as Metal Gear is, it still feels like they're conversations that could feasibly happen, <laughs> you know, between actual people in the right setting. <laughs> Let's talk a little bit about the different versions of Metal Gear Solid, because it is kind of weird, and people have different experiences with it. So, the original game released in 98 on the PlayStation 1, that version exactly also exists on the, well, basically every console, like Xbox and PC and GameCube and all that. I don't think so. I think the only places that you can play Metal Gear Solid 1 right now are, if you have a PS3, you can play the digital copy that comes with the metal gear solid collection which is what and i did <laughs> it's also on pc but the pc port of metal gear solid one is very bad i don't think metal gear solid one is available anywhere else like there's no way to play it on the switch or the the xbox or anything like that or even on you know the ps4 and ps5 i don't even think it's on playstation now yeah it's it's so weird how playstation handles their legacy content I don't, this one's not necessarily PlayStation's fault. It's more Konami, because Konami's re-released like the entire the entire series except for Metal Gear Solid One multiple times. Right. I don't know. It could be like some kind of weird agreement with Nintendo. Maybe, maybe, because there are there's a lot of weird licensing stuff that you get into in the late '90s, specifically with like the you know Nintendo and Sony and their respective consoles and. I don't know. It's all kind of a mess. But in 2004, they re-released the game, what's referred to as the Twin Snakes edition. And so correct me if I'm wrong, that version is the Metal Gear Solid 2 engine, but the game of Metal Gear Solid 1. Does that sound right? More or less. I don't know if it's actually the same engine or not, but it's basically Metal Gear Solid 1 recreated with all of Metal Gear Solid 2's features. You know, like uh, first-person aiming being a big one. Right. And in Twin Snakes, instead of just being stuck with uh, like lethal options like the pistol, you have a tranquilizer gun. It did seem kind of strange that you had to kill so many people in this stealth game. <laughs> so that's that's interesting they would add Technically, that. Technically, you can play the game without killing anyone except for the bosses. I guess that's fair. Now that I think about it, most of the scenes... It probably seemed like I needed to get caught or something, but there was probably some other path I just wasn't aware of. I'm not very good at stealth games. Yeah, there are definitely some things in Metal Gear Solid 1 that I would say don't hold up super well, but those things are usually kind of easier to ignore because of the level design. Let's get into the mechanics specifically, because honestly I was kind of dreading this one going into it because... I don't value story in games as much as you do. And a game having rough mechanics can sink it for me much faster than having a bad story can. And 
I was really pleasantly surprised by how this game plays. Like, it still feels pretty good most of the time. Like, the actual, the regular running around, you know, hiding from enemies, you know, occasionally, you know, choking someone out or shooting them in the back or whatever. Like, that was all, like, that felt pretty good most of the time, which I wasn't expecting at all because tank controls are notoriously bad, and this was even pretty early for tank control standards. So, I, mean, I wouldn't necessarily call it tank controls. You just don't have an analog stick. Right. And it's more specifically changing directions isn't as... It's not as instantaneous as it is in games like... Like platformers like Crash Bandicoot or whatever from the time. Mm-hmm. Like there's a little more... It's a little more deliberate in how you move. And it does sort of... It sort of mimics the tank controls as you see them in games like Resident Evil. It's not nearly that rigid though. Which goes a long way because a lot of this game is turning and immediately running because you realize, oh, wait, there's actually two guys on the other side that could see me and, you know, having to adapt to things like that. I think a big part of this game and what makes it work even now is the controls are very tight. And it always makes an effort to give you all the information you need at a given time because you also have your, your radar at the top right of the screen always showing you the enemy's cone of vision and where they are. And for the most part, they follow pretty standard paths. And avoiding them just kind of becomes second nature after a certain point. <laughs> it stops yeah. being something you have to think about so much, which is kind of weird because I'm playing Metal Gear Solid 3 now, which does away with the, the Soliton radar. And it definitely takes a lot of getting used to. <laughs> but Metal Gear Solid 1 is a lot tighter with you know what enemies can do what you can expect from them and also what you can do and the ways that you can avoid them or take them out without you know alarming everyone in the room i will say it does at times sort of bleed into this thing where you're basically just it feels like you're playing as the dot on the mini map instead of as snake because you're watching that specifically for the cones of vision more than you're actually watching what's on screen and I definitely missed some pretty significant, like, obvious items around the room because I was watching the radar, like, way too closely when I should have been watching Snake himself. That's kind of an issue I have with all the games in the series is that mm. there's a really muted color palette for the most time, or for the yeah. most part. So yeah. unless you have, like, the thermal goggles equipped, you're just constantly going to miss items that are right in front of you. Maybe that's worse for me because I'm colorblind. Probably doesn't help, <laughs> yeah. And and sort of speaking of that, it's dreary sometimes, but I think generally speaking, the game looks fantastic. Like, it holds up really, really well. When it's a little too zoomed in on a specific character model, like during cutscenes with a lot of dialogue, it looks a little janky. But, like, for the most part, this game looks, like, pretty good which is weird because it's not even like I have the nostalgia of it because I didn't really connect with this game on that level to begin with. But, like, you could tell how ambitious this was with the hardware they were working with at the time. Yeah, I mean, something that I'll say is I think that the artists making games for stuff like the PS1 back in the 90s were... They're they're very underrated these days. Because, yeah, some of their texture work might not look as good as something that you see in any modern game post-2000. But they had a lot less polygons to work with. And the fact yeah. that sometimes they're able to make, like a square actually resemble a a CD player or something like that <laughs> right. to the point where you can just look at it and be like, oh yeah, that's a CD player. Instead of being yeah. like, I wonder what that is. Yeah. 
it's definitely impressive and it, it's kind of a, a lost art form <laughs> as right. weird as it sounds i mean it's always cool to see people that are making something this big and ambitious with so little resources because even if they wanted to spend an absolute eternity crafting every single detail of these characters, they can still only make them so realistic with what a PlayStation 1 was capable of. I mean, that's that's basically just programming on a calculator at this point by the standards we have today. Yeah, I mean, it's pretty impressive that they managed to tell an interesting, like engrossing, and actually somewhat emotional at times story when... Most of the characters don't have eyes, and none of them right. have mouths. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And they yeah, all like, just kind of talk by bobbing their head up and down. <laughs> maybe a little too aggressively sometimes. <laughs> yeah, like I was, I was shocked at how sort of engrossed I was really able to get with these characters because even on games with much, much more realistic character models, they don't feel real. But there is definitely a lot of love that went into the dialogue of this game, and. There is a lot of it. <laughs> yeah, I, that's for sure one thing that you can say about Kojima. He loves writing dialogue. And <laughs> yeah. also, most of it he wants to take place inside of Codec Calls for some reason. Yeah. Which, I think as a resource, that makes a ton of sense. Because it has to be a million times easier to make a Codec scene than it does to make an in-engine cutscene. But there is a lot of looking at a black or a greenish black screen... With just two heads bobbing up and down. It gets even worse with Metal Gear Solid 2. Because there's three or four different times in that game. Where you'll meet someone in person. And they'll come up with some kind of excuse or reason. Why instead of saying your communications out loud. You should do it over a codec call. While you're standing right next to each other. (laughs) Nice. (laughs) I'm guessing it's just because it's a lot easier to, to animate those floating heads. In the codec conversations than it is to actually animate the the people in the world sure (laughs) but sure it it does come across as very strange now i feel like everybody kind of knows a very surface level understanding of the metal gear solid series you got solid snake who's a super spy you got the metal gear which are big old robots but like i think that's where a lot of people's knowledge ends (laughs) And a lot of people, especially people you know younger than us, their main affiliation with Snake comes from Smash Brothers, which is crazy. Even after playing Metal Gear Solid 1 in its entirety, I'm still a little bit scared to talk about the plot of this game because it's a lot. So can you set us up a little bit about like what is happening going into Metal Gear Solid 1? Because I even I don't really understand a lot about like what this base he's breaking into is and like the history of it yeah i mean i don't want to go too too far into it but basically following the events of metal gear and metal gear 2 snake has retired to the alaskan wilderness which is just a little bit of set dressing for like why snake is the main character and why he's here but um (laughs) kind of the main thing to get into is right before the game starts shadow moses island which is Uh, a nuclear disposal facility in the i think it's like the fox archipelago in alaska is taken over by a group of terrorists who say that they want the remains of big boss who was the main bad guy from metal gear one and two as well as a bunch of money i think (laughs) might be confusing that with metal gear solid 2 
But essentially, Snake is sent in because he has a close relationship to Big Boss, and he's also kind of established himself as like a stealth genius in those previous two games. And by the way, something I do want to mention about this game is it doesn't really require you to have played Metal Gear 1 and 2, and it kind of manages to just explain the high points of those games in a way that kind of explains Snake's relationships with the characters from them, and also like his understanding of Metal Gear, which are, you know, the main weapons. But anyway, Snake gets there, and they find out that the, the terrorists are actually from a spec ops group called Foxhound, which is the same group that Solid Snake and Big Boss worked for in the Metal Gear 1 and 2 games. Oh, okay. I didn't even realize that Snake and Big Boss worked together. I thought that they had no affiliation until some spoilery stuff you find out later. No, Snake and Big Boss. Big Boss was like the commander of Foxhound at the time of Metal Gear 1 and 2, which is, I think, like, Metal Gear 2 might take place in 1995 or 1999. This game, by the way, takes place in 2005, just, <laughs> yeah, it's, just for reference. it's not super long before this game takes place in 2005. Yeah. Yeah. So, like, Snake has been retired for a few years, but they send him in because he, you know, was a previous member of Foxhound, which is supposed to be, like, the best of the best. So they are like, oh, he's probably our best chance of taking them all down. And once Snake gets there, a big part of what he finds out is that Shadow Moses Island isn't just a nuclear disposal facility. That was actually a front, and it's actually where they're developing a new type of weapon called Metal Gear. Uh, in this case, it's Metal Gear Rex. And it's a joint collaborat uh, collaborative effort between the Department of Defense and a, co a company called Arms Tech. But basically, the Metal Gears are like more dangerous than any weapon previously known to man. They're, they're bipedal, nuclear-equipped tanks. The idea is just that, like, oh, since they're on two feet, they can go anywhere that a person can, essentially. Yeah, it's uh, it's pretty hardcore, but, like, it starts off very, like, normal spy stuff. The beginning definitely feels like the beginning of one of the older James Bond movies. He's, like, in a dive suit, and he's swimming through these, like, tunnels... And ends up in this cargo bay by himself and has to slowly, like, pick off people because he doesn't have a weapon yet. And he has to re-equip himself. And it feels very stereotypical spy movie. And then it takes about an hour to devolve into something much, much weirder. Yeah, I, I can tell that it's it's really inspired by James Bond. <laughs> for sure, for sure. Which is kind of weird because... It to me, it felt like watching um, the newest James Bond movie, No Time to Die. That it kind of stole a lot from this game in turn, <laughs> at yeah. least plot wise. Sure. One really specific, like major plot point that just is exactly one to one the same, which feels really weird. I think that might have actually been in a James Bond movie first. Like that way, wouldn't way surprise before. me. Yeah. It's kind of a mess. Yeah. So. So. so Basically, oh. Solid Snake's just got to go in and take out all the terrorists. The Department of Defense wants him to, you know, just make sure that the, the terrorists don't actually launch any nukes from Metal Gear. Snake, at some point during the game, decides that it would probably be in everyone's best interest if he just destroys it. So that kind of becomes his mission. 
And then there's a whole bunch of characters, a whole bunch, a whole wacky cast of characters he meets along the way that he works <laughs> yeah. together with or works to kill. So yeah. he's able to finally fight the the leader of the terrorist, who's a guy that calls himself Liquid Snake. Let's talk a little bit about some of those those enemies, because I think that generally speaking, the stealth gameplay in this game is pretty dang good across the board. I really, really enjoyed it. Some of the bosses, which are some of the like most iconic parts of the Metal Gear series, they're a little bit more of a mixed bag. <laughs> it uh, yeah. it varies a lot. Like you have your revolver ocelots and your Vulcan ravens, which are like normal dudes, just very, very good at what they do. Well, Vulcan raven is covered in raven tattoos that can become real living ravens. Oh, I didn't really. I didn't really understand the logistics of what was happening there. I thought it was just I was I thought he was like calling them in from somewhere and that was just like PS1 limitations of Yeah, of that's definitely they... something that's a lot more clear in Twin Snakes. Is oh, that okay. the the ravens are his tattoos. Ah, okay. Uh okay. Revolver Ocelot, it it definitely changes after this game. I'm not far enough in 3 to know for sure, you know, whether it's going to turn out that there's something up with him. Revolver Ocelot is, as far as I know, just a normal dude. <laughs> yeah. He just yeah. really likes revolvers. And then you have some, like, just crazy enemies like Gray Fox and Psycho Mantis that are like... Psycho Mantis is so far out of the norm of everything else about this game. <laughs> like, I love it, but at the same time, I just can't help but ask why. <laughs> yeah, he's definitely kind of more of a paranormal aspect. <laughs> yeah. It does feel like, especially with Sniper Wolf and Revolver Ocelot, and even Liquid Snake, like, they're just a group of highly trained soldiers. But then you do have Vulcan Raven, who has raven tattoos that come to life, and Psycho Mantis, who is just straight up psychic. He can read yeah. people's mind and pick up objects and just throw them all around with his mind. It actually turns out, I was just going to leave it at pick up objects, but then I was like, I guess anyone can do that. <laughs> But one thing that I do really appreciate, even if it's a little bit frustrating sometimes, is the actual mechanics for these fights are pretty much all different. You don't fight any two bosses the same way. And sometimes it's just the equipment that you use changes, but other times like you have to really think about these things differently. Like even just the first to second boss, like Revolver Ocelot's a run and gun situation, and then with Gray Fox you have to put the guns away and just like you're dodging melee attacks and trying to punch him back and all that. And they feel totally different, even though like mechanically they're not that different. What what would you say is your like favorite boss in the game? I mean the Psychomantis one is pretty iconic. Yeah, for sure. Honestly, I think it starts pretty strong with the with the uh, the ninja fight. Yeah, yeah. Which is the second boss fight in the game. The The Revolver Ocelot fight is... I mean, it's an interesting idea. It's a little too easy. <laughs> and it's right. even easier in Twin Snakes because instead of having to you know run, away, run around and wait for him to run out of ammo, uh, you can just find a spot, like stand at an opposite corner from him and then yeah. shoot him in first-person aiming. I really struggled with that fight until I realized the strategy was just don't stop running. <laughs> like, if you try and take cover anywhere, he will just bounce a bullet off a wall and hit you. But if you are moving at all, he just suddenly loses all ability to aim. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of funny, because they they work hard to establish that he's, like, 
really good at shooting his revolvers. Uh, <laughs> He's and then, really good at guns. It turns out if you're moving at all, he is a terrible shot. Yeah. I think that one problem that this being a PlayStation 1 game faces is the melee combat wasn't great. So it wasn't that big a deal normally. But I think that the final fight, which has a lot of emphasis on melee, was really underwhelming. Like, it was very cool narratively. And, like, it looked cool visually. But the actual gameplay mechanics were very simple and very repetitive. Which was kind of a bummer, considering how wild some of the other boss fights in the game were. It's definitely got a very disappointing final boss fight. Yeah. I mean, it's it's literally just a fist fight with no real frills. <laughs> yeah. yeah. He moves around a lot and it's hard to hit him. But other than that, it's just avoid his attacks and hit him yourself. <laughs> yeah. There's no no trick to it. No special equipment you have to figure out. No like weird path you have to take. It's just dodge a punch and then punch back. And narratively, like, even that boss fight kind of makes sense. Sure. Sure. Um, I don't want to get too much into spoilers, but yeah, no, we like we, we, there's definitely a good reason why it's just kind of like a fist fight to yeah, finish everything yeah. off. But it is very disappointing, especially when you compare it to like the ninja fight, which is the same thing but better. Yeah, <laughs> this game also has kind of a weird issue with difficulty, where every time you beat a boss, your health bar gets bigger and you can hold more rations. So as the game goes on, the game gets easier for some reason instead of yeah. more difficult because i don't think like i don't think the game gets harder really at all as it goes on no honestly the ninja fight has been the toughest one for me so far it's yeah. a pretty flat difficulty curve so by the time you're at i mean you can't use items like rations for the final fight but your health bar is bigger than it's ever been before it's not much smaller than his and you do roughly the same amount of damage to each other and you're not a ps1 ai <laughs> In they kind of fix that in Twin Snakes because you have your full health bar and you can hold the max number of rations from the very beginning. And it, it's the same way in the other Metal Gear games. It's kind of counterintuitive to make the game have a better difficulty curve by just giving you more health. Could be worse. They could just give enemies more health and call it a day. Too many games did that, especially when you were getting into this like first era of more than just platformers for like third person action games. I will say, you know, one really good thing about the gameplay and it's something you can see during the bosses is that the levels are like meticulously crafted for the abilities that snake has. Yeah, for sure. And that's kind of actually an issue that twin snakes has of it's not designed for things like first person aiming. So like a lot of things in twin snakes are better. I would say this is probably controversial from what I've seen on like forums and stuff, but the voice acting in twin snakes is significantly better. It doesn't, you don't have characters doing like frankly kind of racist accents. Yeah. (laughs) Like Mei Ling and Naomi both just talk with like their normal accents instead of, especially with Mei Ling's like, Really putting it on thick. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and a big part of actually why they needed to re-record all of the dialogue for Twin Snakes is because the the dialogue for the original Metal Gear Solid was recorded at someone's house, just in a room. And the PS1's sound card isn't good enough that it's an issue. But even the GameCube sound card, apparently if they hadn't replaced all of the audio, like you could hear people in the next room. <laughs> 
So it's got like actually professionally recorded. And also something I like is that by the time of Twin Snakes, David Hayter had really figured out what his snake voice was. (laughs) Yeah. Because like his voice is all over the place in the original. (laughs) I think part of it was the writing was all over the place though. And he was sort of just rolling with the punches. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, that's definitely part of it. He just, he definitely uses a different voice in Metal Gear Solid 1 versus the other games. And he's kind of got it figured out by the end of Metal Gear Solid 1. It's, it's, it's noticeable. Like, if you play Twin Snakes and Metal Gear Solid 1, like, in that order, you're like, oh. (laughs) But a lot of what Twin Snakes does makes the game worse, because it's not designed, like I mentioned, it's not designed for things like first-person aiming, or being able to hang over ledges. So there are some rooms in Metal Gear Solid Twin Snakes that are just trivially easy, because, well, let's just, I'll just come with the the first example in the game that really matters, is the, the tank hanger. If you're playing Twin Snakes and you come in from the uh, the second floor, you literally start one level above the elevator, but right next to it. So all you have to do to get to the elevator is like take two steps to your left, press the button to hang over the ledge, and then go into the elevator. <laughs> Whereas that's a whole thing if you're doing it like, you know, the normal Metal Gear Solid one way. Yeah, and it, it kind of makes up for it by having the Metal Gear 2, or Metal Gear Solid 2 AI, where enemies will, well, first off, in Dwind Snakes, they don't just disappear when you take them out, they'll actually, like, lay on the ground, and if somebody sees it, like, they'll call in back up and start an yeah. alert, but <laughs> I, I don't know, it doesn't really feel like it necessarily evens out completely, yeah. still a little weird, but it, it just goes to show, like, how well-designed Metal Gear Solid 1 is with its with its levels like every map feels complicated but intuitive like there's a lot to take in but you kind of know what to look for naturally and you Mm -hmm. kind of know what direction to keep moving in which is very good and it's something that you have to really be a master of the art form to be able to do that without people getting like totally lost which like there are still moments in this game kind of meant to lose you but only in a so you're open to explore kind of way, not so you have to like, you know, not so you're frustrated in any way. I do think it has it has a really smart take on sort of the quote unquote Metroidvania ness of it too, because you have these key cards that you get like progressively higher levels of it, and the higher level you have, the more doors you can open, and a lot of those doors aren't story related at all but it's just it's one more place you can find ammo or maybe even a whole new weapon or you know something to make your life easier and as you progress in the game and you have the more key cards you just have more of those you can access as you're going especially when you go backtrack some yeah it definitely incentivizes backtracking although sometimes the story also just forces you to do backtracking (laughs) yeah it's like hey the next hour is not going to be fun i'm sorry the most egregious example is when you get the sniper wolf and like you need a sniper rifle to fight her so you have to go all the way back to the first building in the game and go to a random door that's unlocked now that you have a key I, yeah i think you just get the key card for it like right before it, it's just a lot of backtracking like it, it adds sure. 20 minutes <laughs> to yeah. the game yeah just to get a sniper rifle once again, Twin Snakes kind of makes it better. It adds a, uh, a tranquilizer sniper rifle that's just pretty nearby. 
Mm. So you don't have to backtrack all the way to the first room. I will okay. say, though, even with the backtracking, it, it never feels too tedious. Maybe sure. a little bit at near the very end where you have to, you know, heat up and cool down the key card. But <laughs> up, up until that, like, it, it definitely... It feels satisfying when you go back to other to areas you've already been to because yeah. there's usually different enemies there or a different patrol pattern. It kind of feels like every room in the game is a puzzle to solve almost. Like as the game as you get further in the game, it just sort of naturally makes things more difficult, but it also adapts it to like your kit and stuff a little bit more. So it is it is interesting to see sort of how the areas evolve as you progress into further ones. The route that you took last time doesn't work anymore because it's a completely different set of guards. And you right. need to get to a completely different room. <laughs> I thought that uh, Snake climbing into a, a cardboard box was more of a joke than anything else. But, oh boy, that comes in handy the first time you're going through a new area with a patrol. <laughs> like I relied maybe a little too heavily on that in the first like half of the game. <laughs> the cardboard box is iconic for a reason. <laughs> yeah, It's everybody's favorite item. Um, there's also there's a small fast travel system in Metal Gear Solid One where if you it, it, there are a couple of areas where you can climb into a truck and if you put on a certain box it'll take you to whatever area that box you're wearing is associated with. I never used it, but it, it's just kind of neat. <laughs> yeah, that's a very Kojima thing to do. Yeah, they have the same thing in Metal Gear Solid Two. And I, I think it's actually the first place it appeared was Metal Gear, like the original Metal Gear 2. He loves using cardboard boxes as fast travel. <laughs> now, one thing I think is really, really smart about this game is that all of it feels very intimate because it's all basically Shadow Moses Island, this one facility. It's all over a short period of time. Most of the characters, Snake's meeting for the first time, you know, in the game. It feels very self-contained. Do future games kind of hold on to that? Or do they have... Because I've played 5 and it's much bigger and more open. But like 2 and 3, are they kind of in that same vein? Or do they have a lot more... Are they broader? 2 is definitely in the same vein. Um, I don't want to get too, too much into it. You can get into spoilers pretty easily. But 2 is pretty much just modeled on 1. Like, to the letter. (laughs) Um... Three is a bit more open because instead of being in like a single facility, you're in the jungle. And I mean, it's got like a whole different vibe to it, partially because in three, like you don't even have a fixed camera like you can. Right. It plays like a modern game with its camera, Uh, (laughs) whereas one and two, they stick to a fixed camera system. So, you know, you only see the room from the angles that they want you to unless you're in first person view. But I, I would definitely say that 3 kind of moves away from that. It's still like the first time that Snake's meeting a lot of these characters, but he's meeting them over a, a huge area. <laughs> and it's not like, <laughs> right. there's not like a lot of backtracking, so it's not like you ever really feel particularly intimate with an area. It's kind of hard to say, because I haven't gotten... I said I'm like halfway through 2, or 3. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so there could be... A whole section that I run into later, it's like, oh, well, the, the, actually, the entire second half of the game is just in this one building. And <laughs> yeah. that could kind of surprise me. So we've already gone on about Metal Gear for, for quite a while. And I don't think that there's any sense in us doing like a recap review thing like we do. I mean, this game is almost 24 years old. There's no, like nothing we're going to say as critics. 
but but is there anything in particular that you wanted to you know talk about before we finished up i i think we've we've pretty much covered the the big stuff about like the gameplay and the story and the the visuals and all that i did want to ask you though like as someone who's you know put a good bit of time into the series and is you know you've had pretty positive things to say so far like what is it about this game that's or about this series that's really that special i think there's just something interesting about like the way that it tells these stories and a big part of what metal gear one is about is like or metal gear solid one is like everything in the game is kind of tied to a single theme it's like that with all the Kojima or all of Kojima's games, or at least all the Metal Gear Solid games, where there's one central theme that kind of affects everything in the game. And for Metal Gear Solid One, it's genes. So you have like Solid Snake and Liquid Snake who feel very defined by their genes. And then you have characters like, you know, Naomi or Gray Fox who are being taken advantage of because of who they are and their relationships with each other. I I think it's kind of interesting to see stories told like that. It's definitely, I don't want to get, I I don't know how to get too, too much into it without talking more about the sequels. I enjoy like how cinematic the game is and like the interesting stories that it tells, which are kind of unlike the stories that any other game is telling, you know, like uncharted at the end of the day, those games are mostly about, Nathan Drake trying to get rich and somehow getting screwed along the way. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> like these games feel like they have something to say. It's kind of interesting to play a game where it seems really similar to something like Call of Duty in where it's it's a lot of like military uh you know, military realism inspired. But whereas like Call of Duty is super pro gun, like army and you know yeah. pro yeah. war like these games definitely have a lot to say about like the follies of war and like how men can be better and i think one thing that's really really interesting about kojima that i think a lot of other game developers try to do but eventually have to make conceits on is kojima games never feel like they sacrifice those ideas to be a better video game because at their core they want to tell that story first whereas a lot of games will sacrifice their nuance and their storytelling prowess to be a gamier game like like they will sacrifice that if it in the name of the mechanics being better or making it more approachable or yeah. making it easier to sit through whereas Kojima is very Kojima much almost does the opposite Right. It feels like almost every game decision is more there to serve the story rather than the story serving the gameplay. That's something I'd like to see more of. Even if a lot of yeah. Kojima's games haven't always clicked with me, I still think that that's something that that takes an ambition that is really hard to do or to really hard to have in today's climate where everything is about you know, having clips of cool action scenes you can put in a trailer to please stockholders who will then turn around and decide how much time you have to work on your game and like 
like so much of the game industry now has to be monetized to the minute that it seems almost impossible for the Kojimas of the world to go out and just make cool stuff without any restraints. Yeah, and it's definitely interesting to see. It doesn't feel like video games really have the same level of like authorial authority. Sure. The Eberts of the world made sure we felt that way. Because yeah. like when you watch a movie, you know, at least with directors that put out a lot of stuff, like when you when you watch a Christopher Nolan movie, like you know it's a Nolan movie. <laughs> sure. When when you watch a, a Spielberg movie, like there are trademarks, like you know it's a Spielberg movie. It's kind of interesting to see that with video games. And it, for the most part, it feels like Kojima's... I, I wouldn't want to say he's the only one. I mean, the dude is a rock star that you do not <laughs> yeah. see in the medium. I like to see that kind of thing. And I think it's really cool. Whenever you play a Kojima game, like, you know it's a Kojima game. Right. And, you know, the, the things that the game is about are things that he's passionate about, at least on some level. And I, and I just think it's really unique in, a, in the video game space. I, I would say that's probably the biggest draw for me, you know, more than anything else, is just seeing a director who actually seems like he has control over his game. <laughs> yeah. As opposed to just kind of pleasing stockholders. <laughs> because I can say for sure, Death Stranding is not a stockholder pleaser. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. But Death Stranding is an incredible game. It offered something that literally no one else has done. <laughs> Tells an interesting story. In a unique story that no one else is going to tell. I mean, no other game is going to have a baby inside of a man's stomach. I mean, that's as simple as that. <laughs> I got one other story that has a baby inside of a man's stomach, and that's uh, The Fairly Odd Parents. So, checkmate. <laughs> I guess you got me there. I think that's a lot of Metal Gear Solid talk, and I, I think that this is a series we will certainly come back to in some capacity in the future, so we still want to leave a lot, a lot to talk about. So I think that means it's time to pull the plug. Jason, what else have you been into? When I'm not playing Metal Gear Solid, I've been watching Brooklyn Nine-Nine. I, I basically stopped watching around the time like season five ended. So I hadn't seen seasons six through eight. But, uh, I think I was in the same boat. I think it was, I watched one season after the switch to NBC and then I gave up after that, which I guess would have been either season five or six, one of the two. It wasn't like a content issue or anything. It, it was literally just, I stopped watching network television so much around then. I feel but, like it was a content issue to some degree. Like, I don't think the show was as good after it made the move. And I have a hard time defining exactly why. But I'm interested to see how it holds up, like watching it straight through. <laughs> I've really enjoyed it. I think it's pretty good. I just started season eight. But, I mean, like, rewatching through the first four or five seasons was really good. Like, it's a really funny show. It has some particularly good episodes are any time when Craig Robinson's... Is it Craig Robinson? That dude's hilarious. I, I don't think I've seen anything that I don't like him in. He was yeah. even pretty good when I saw him in that... Uh, it was, like, Ghosted or whatever that he did yeah. <laughs> with uh, with Adam Scott. That show was wild. But, yeah, he was it even It was good not a good show, yeah. but he was still good yeah. in it. <laughs> This guy's even good in the Pizza Hut commercials. <laughs> yeah, any of the any of the episodes with him in it are especially great. The Halloween ones are also all excellent. Yeah, I, I think it's pretty nice to see a show where it, it really does seem like everyone's having fun and like having a good time. It's nice seeing like uh, 
I, something I always really enjoy with longer running shows is kind of seeing like how the cast evolves over time. And it, it's just kind of nice to see like a cast of characters that all, you know, like each other and support each other just going about their business. <laughs> yeah. And also something I want to point out with Brooklyn Nine-Nine specifically, Andre Brower as Captain Holt is absolutely phenomenal. Like the dude has won multiple like Emmys and Critics Choice Awards and all that stuff, but he deserves a freaking Nobel Prize for that role. Like he is so good in it, and every single time that he breaks that like hard shell for even just like a second in the show, it is hysterical. Like every single time he does it. Yeah, like one of the particularly good intros is the one where he, does, I think he's hula hooping. Yes. Or, yeah. Or, yeah. And Jake runs into him, and he's just basically like, "No one's gonna believe you," and he leaves. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. There, there are so many good scenes where it's just you think he's gonna be like very stern and angry about something, and he just does like a heel turn, and he's suddenly like really excited. Yeah, is the one where they're talking about his response to eating a marshmallow for the first time, and then oh, Charles yes. is just like makes a really weird noise, and everyone's like, "He's never gonna respond like that." <laughs> <laughs> and then it cuts to him eating a marshmallow. Yeah. And he makes yeah. the exact same noise. Yeah. It's genius. Incredible writing. Yeah. I also think that Brooklyn Nine-Nine has one of the single funniest moments in like all of television with its uh, cold open where he has the lineup sing, I want it that way. Like that is just such a good, like it's only like 45 seconds long, but it is so funny. I think I think any show that can do good cold opens is like that's how you really show off how funny your writers are, and a lot of them just knock it out of the park on Brooklyn Nine Nine, which is crazy considering it had eight seasons. <laughs> really good show though. I'm having a good time watching it. Uh, I'm actually kind of let down that I'm close to the end because I don't know what I'm gonna watch next. <laughs> Paralyzed by choice. But anyway, that's enough for me. Uh, Jordan, what have you been up to? I think I actually want to talk about something I've been into for a really long time, and I've just I finally made enough headway that I think I can talk about it like reasonably. So it's a book series, which I know isn't our norm on this podcast. But I don't know how to read. Yeah, it's it's something that we just never picked up on because we played too many video games. But it's a book series called well, it, it has a couple of different names. Most people refer to it as as the Cradle series which is by a, a guy named Will White. Uh, the books have only, they've only been coming out over the last several years, but the premise is very, very heavily anime inspired. Like, this is, it's, it's written by an American man, but he clearly takes a lot from anime. And why I think I resonate with these books so much is because I am not an anime fan. Generally speaking, I like it conceptually, but a lot of it is ruined by very fan service over-the-top, like, hypersexualized content, and that's just not for me. Where this book series takes a lot of, like, the over-the-top fighting and the creativity of, like, the lore that I like in anime, but cuts out all of that fan service stuff. There is, this is a much more serious story, but it still has a lot of the explosive over-the-topness that you see in anime with these people that are so, like, astrologically or astronomically powerful, astrologically powerful that 
it's like incomprehensible at first and it has like power levels and ridiculous ranking systems and it has this concept of like you know the 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 strongest man in this village can like punch a tree down with one swing and then it's like you go you you expand out to see more of the world it's like and the strongest guy in this village can like blink you to death <laughs> like like there's this ever evolving like dragon ball z like escalation happening but one thing that this book is or this book series is really smart about is at the very beginning it shows you what someone at the highest level possible is like and the entire series after that is like the main character building to that and it's just it's very very smart writing it's very they're, they're short easy to read books but there are a bunch of them <laughs> there are uh eight books in the main series and then there's like a spin-off series with several more and then there's like a lore series it's three or four additional books and like, like there's a lot to crack into here but i've really really enjoyed what i've read so far they're the Cradle series. And they are on Amazon. If you have Amazon... Um, crap, I can't even think of what it's called. The Book Subscription Series. You can read them all on there, which is what I've been doing on my Kindle. So I, I would recommend checking them out. The first book is called Unsold, Cradle Volume 1. It's, it's good stuff, y'all. Check it out. Unsold like shoes or unsold like... Unsold... Uh, it's spelled unsold like shoes. <laughs> but it's referring to, like, lacks a human soul. <laughs> oh. It has a really, really smart premise of this main character is... they He, he is determined to not have a soul. That is sort of the premise of the, of the very first book. And because of that, everyone, everyone else in this world has magic powers of some capacity, and he just doesn't. So, like, he's a teenager... And literally, like, couldn't stand up in a fight to, like, five- and six-year-olds. But it doesn't take long into the book before he starts to see that just because he doesn't have any power by this one society's standards doesn't mean anything. The world is so, so much bigger than anyone realizes and just because he didn't have a path to become powerful, you know, from this very, very small lens he started with, doesn't mean he doesn't have potential everywhere else. And he explores that potential everywhere else. And it's it's very, very cool. Like, it reminds me a ton of Naruto, but without the stuff that makes Naruto hard to watch. <laughs> and if Naruto himself was just a little bit less annoying... And if the creators of Naruto knew when to end it. <laughs> yeah. Well, we don't know that with this guy. I mean, he will probably still be cranking out books in this series in some capacity for many, many years to come. So we'll see. And I haven't finished all of them yet. I've almost finished the initial, like, eight books. But there's still a lot of other stuff to get into. My problem with anime, my bigger issue, is more just that it doesn't know when to end. And, like, at some point, I gotta go home. I, <laughs> yeah. You know? Yeah. I can't stay up all day watching this. Yeah. At some point, Goku has to find the One Piece. Am I right? <laughs> Amen. <sighs> well, I think that just about does it for another episode of the Totally Biased Media Podcast. If you would like to reach out to us, there are a lot of ways you can do that. First off, you can find us on Twitter at TBMCast. 
on Instagram at Totally Biased Media. We stream on Twitch every, at least every other week. It's twitch.tv slash Totally Biased Media. If you want to send us your reviews for any recent release games or your suggestions for the show or anything you want to tell us, you can send that to totallybiasedmedia at gmail.com. We would love to hear from you. We would be happy to engage however we reasonably can. Um, you know, just anything you want to tell us, we would love to hear it. And if you're wondering why Jackson isn't here, it's because he has a clause in his contract that says he doesn't play games with pee in them. And there's a scene where a guy pees himself in this game. Yeah, it's a real problem. He just wouldn't cross that bridge for us. But he will be back in the future when there's less urine involved. <laughs> but for the Totally Biased Media Podcast, I'm Jordan Walkup. I'm Jason Simmons. Oh, oh and, and you just felt the bias. <laughs> Thank you, everybody. Goodbye. Goodbye.